today's Bible reading comes from Romans chapter 8, from verses 28 till 39, the end of the chapter, and it's found on page 917 in the Red Church Bibles. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined um, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks, Jane. Friends, we come to the... Uh a really powerful passage of scripture and the last uh, talk in this Romans 6 to 8 series. Let me pray that God would speak to us. Lord God, we ask as we come under your word that we would uh, hear your word, understand your word, and that we would put our confidence in your word, even where we might have questions or doubts. Uh, help us to submit ourselves to your word and your truth, to trust in your good purposes. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, it was uh, September 11th, 2001. Todd Beamer was on a flight uh, 93 that went down in Pennsylvania. He was on that aeroplane in 9-11 when he called out, let's roll, and took on the terrorists. He died with all the others, and he left behind his wife Lisa and three small children. Lisa said this about her loss, reflecting on it a bit later. She said, God's sovereignty has made it clear to me when I am tempted to become angry and ask what if and why us, God says, I knew on September the 10th and I could have stopped it, but I have a plan for greater good than you can ever imagine. She says, I don't know God's plan and honestly right now I don't like it very much, but I trust that he is true to his promise in Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. My only responsibility is to love God. He'll work out the rest. Beneath her signature, Lisa writes, Genesis 50, verse 20. You might remember the, these words spoken by Joseph in the Old Testament to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. He said, as for, you, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
See, God has a purpose that will not be frustrated in the world. And his purpose is to take, listen carefully, to take a people and make them like his son Jesus for the glory of his name. A people who are more than conquerors because of the invincible purpose of God. Our role is to trust in the sovereign goodness of God, even in tragedy and suffering. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we are told that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our eternity is secure. We're told further that the Holy Spirit lives and works in us to help us to become more like Jesus. But friends, there are genuine struggles in life. At times, as we saw last week, we will groan deeply in our pain as we wait for the bride to return. But through it all, God is working to fulfill his purposes. God is not impotent. God is at work in all things to fulfill his purposes. And in this part of Romans, Paul takes us from an eternity past to an eternity that is yet to come, from divine foreknowledge and predestination to the divine love, which absolutely nothing whatsoever is able to separate us from. The theologian John Stott puts it this way, the burden of Paul's climax is the unchangeable, irresistible, invincible purpose of God, and by this purpose and in it, the security of the people of God. And as you hear some of these texts, you might have questions and doubts. Remember, Paul is writing to encourage the church that they are safe, they are secure in Jesus. God's got this. He, he knows what's happening. He is still working through all things for our good and the glory of his name. So firstly, becoming like Jesus. This is the plan and purpose of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, being called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Hear that, that's key. Conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God works for the good of those who love him. And if you love him and trust in him, God is working for your good. What is this good? Is it material prosperity? Is it good health? Is it a happy marriage? Is it successful children? No. That's not, I mean, you may get all of those things, but that's not the ultimate goal. Many of you do not have as much money as others, but God is still good. Many of you have faced cancer, but God is still good. Many of you have had to leave an unhappy marriage, but God is still good. Your children are driving you nuts, but God is still good. You see, your identity and your ultimate purpose is not about those things around you, it's about this relationship with God. And the Father's objective in Christ's coming is that we will be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And God is in the business of transforming lives, lives that will ultimately resemble Jesus. Now, Romans 8.28 has become a favorite verse of contemporary Christians. But we need to be careful how we apply it. 
We can have a lovely phrase up on the wall. For God is in the business of making redeemed sinners like the older brother Jesus. And Jesus suffered. And Jesus was persecuted. And Jesus was killed. And through, we saw last week, through suffering comes glory. It's not saying that in the end everything will turn out all right. I just prayed and it's going to turn out all right. No, it's not. Sometimes it will. The marriage will be restored. That illness will be healed. Maybe through a, a, a supernatural act of God or maybe through the cancer treatment. Sometimes it will. It's not saying in that sense, everything will turn out all right in the end. Just trust God. Things often don't work, just work out in the end. We bury people. We pick up the pieces of troubled young people. And we take those aches and those groans that we saw last week to the grave and then to Jesus, where all that's taken away. I mean, in one sense, everything in the end will turn out all right if you mean God will make us more like Jesus. Be careful how you understand and apply this first. The Apostle Paul was under house arrest in the book of Philippians, and he writes Philippians. He rejoiced that the gospel was advancing. It's in, in one sense, it turned out all right because the gospel was advancing. But it didn't turn out all right that he was just freed. Jeremiah wrote in God's name a letter to the Jews in, Babylonia, in the Babylonian exile after the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem, 600 BC. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. In the middle of suffering, God was going to do his work. Joseph said, as we said, after being sold by his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. But let me take you to Jesus in Acts chapter 4. Because there's an interesting relationship between evil committed, how God allows evil to take place, and yet God is able to superintend that and turn that evil to good. He said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Who did the evil? Herod, Pontius Pilate. They conspired against him. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It's not outside of the will of God. God can even take evil and turn it for good. Aren't you thankful for that? I remember some of this truth and some of the groaning that would have taken place many years ago I was at Katoomba at a conference in January. And uh, I was meeting, most of them were sort of young university students and I was a little bit older. There's another guy a little bit older, he was a teacher. And we just, as an introduction, we shared our stories. And he shared his story. That blew us all away. He said, oh, I'm a teacher, I was working in the Riverina. He said uh, he and his wife had a one-year-old baby. They were at an ISCF camp, inter-school Christian fellowship camp, serving the Lord. His wife and one-year-old baby left early to go home on Sunday afternoon, involved in a car crash. He said they both died in that crash. Became a widower in his late 20s. 
Now, our group was in shock as he told the story. You don't know what to say after that. You can't just go and tell them, well, I had difficulty with my parents last night. I didn't like my hamburger. It wasn't cooked right. I wish I'd ordered chocolate thick shake instead of vanilla. No, no, you, you just listen. But he said, it's okay. God is Lord and God is sovereign. And they are with Jesus. I don't know why me, why now, or why it's taken place, but I trust in the goodness of God and his sovereign plan and purposes. He said, I'm now leaving teaching and I'm going to more college to study to go into full-time ministry. See, the death did not send him away from Christ, but drew him closer to Christ. Because he's he's got a biblical worldview. He understands that God is at work and sometimes tragedy is part of the human experience. Mortality. It's something that we'll all experience. All things work together for good. There's a story of a museum guide who would take his tour group to a darkened room, shine a light on a massive string colour and apparent chaos, and would say, what do you think this is? And most would say, we don't know what it is. It looks like a mess. And then he would take them to another part of the room. He said, stand over there and now watch. The group moved to the other side of the room. He would turn on a spotlight It was instantly apparent that the massive jumbled coloured string seen just a moment earlier was in fact an enormous tapestry from the backside. So the real work has to be seen from a different perspective to understand what the artist was creating. So it is with God and his ways. We often look at them and ask questions such as why and how. I've been up, friends, at three o'clock in the morning and two o'clock and I'm saying, God, why? Why this? For me, why this for my friend? Why this? And it's normal to ask the whys. But ask the why as someone who trusts in God. I walk away from him, go to him, ask the why, asking for that peace to handle his plan and his purposes. My experience has been some of the most godly, mature Christian men and women are those who have been through tragedy And God has helped them and God has led them. And you sit with them and they tell you their story and they are like Jesus in your presence. Those of us who have been through nothing difficult have not yet come sometime to that depth of trust in Christ. It starts there. And then having risen that because he's saying to them, guys, listen, you're groaning. You're looking forward to the, the new body to come. He said in last week's sermon, Romans 8, 18 to 27. But listen, God is working. There will be suffering. He's going to make you like Jesus. Keep going. Keep trusting. And now he tells them how secure they are. They're secure in the plan and purpose of God, the unbreakable golden chain it's called. Memorize these verses. And then he says to them, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, right? We're just going to make us like Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's called a golden chain because it's all linked. Describes what God has done for us. John Stott puts it this way. The five stages of God's work in producing people conformed to the likeness of his, of his Jesus is traced from its beginnings in his own mind to its culmination in the eternal glory. Let's look at these words. 
the foreknowledge of God. Because I, let me just say, some of you, when you hear foreknowledge and predestination, it worries you a little bit. Don't let it worry you. Paul writes that as a word of encouragement to the church. Not to have a debate, what's the moment God chose us, we chose him, how does it all work? He just writes it as if it's true, right? And we'll deal with that when we have conversation later. Foreknowledge of God, what does that mean? For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now, people ask this question on this idea of foreknowledge. We're going a little bit deeper today, right? Does Paul mean simply that God knew in advance who would respond to him? Or did he know them in advance in the sense that they had a special relationship with him from past eternity? Because he says we're chosen before the creation of the world. Does it simply mean that God knows that what's going to happen? Or does foreknowledge mean something more? F.F. Bruce, the scholar, writes, God's foreknowledge, he connotes the electing grace which is frequently implied in the verb to know in the Old Testament. To know simply doesn't mean that you know something ahead of time. To know means you've set your choice on someone. You know them, you have a relationship with them. Behind the Greek of Romans 8.29 is the Hebrew yada, which means to know in a sense entering into a relationship with. Let me give you some examples where it's used. To know. Uh, Amos 3.2 you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, God knows all the families of the earth, but he knows them in that he's put his, his choice upon them, his love upon them. Hosea 13, it was I who knew you in the wilderness. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter, verse 2 says, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Secondly, predestined. Predestined means to decide upon beforehand. It's an important New Testament teaching. You see that in multiple places in New Testament. God takes the initiative in drawing his people to himself. He says, God knew you, he chose you, he predestined you to come to him. I think about my own life, when you reflect on it for a moment, see, I grew up in a Greek Orthodox family, I was born in Greece. Now I trust in the sovereign plan of God that in God's sovereignty, my parents don't give credit to God for this, but he brought them to Australia with three young boys under the age of five. I almost died on the ship coming over. God in his grace kept me alive. So God is sovereign. God is at work. Place me into Marrickville. If you're going to place someone in a place where they're going to hear the gospel, you might send them to Nawi area, Baptist, with good kids clubs. You wouldn't send them to Marrickville. That's not where you hear the gospel, Right? the way you would hear the gospel. And yet, as God sends our family there, God sends a teacher to teach in the local primary school who has a love for Jesus. So as well as teaching kids, he ran football competitions and he, he ran lunchtime programs and he set up a Christian ISCF group in his classroom where he taught kids about Jesus. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aussie boy from Greenacre. When there used to be blonde-haired, blue-eyes in Greenacre. 
And then he started an after-school ISF group so people like me could attend. So in God's sovereignty, God was working, and at the age of 15, I, I prayed and repented, put my faith in Jesus. But you see, as I come in to the kingdom, I realize that God has set his heart on, uh, on me before eternity past. The Bible says, chosen before the creation of the world. Humanly speaking, I'm coming in, I have to repent. I have human responsibility to turn. But God has been at work in drawing me to that point. And because for me, that's when I was called, right? The call is the other word. Through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. As Daryl preached the gospel over a year, and I went to Bible studies at this youth group. I heard the message of Jesus, and slowly, slowly, God was opening up my heart. And if the Spirit of God does not open up your heart, you don't come to him. The Spirit doesn't convict you of sin, you don't come to him. The Spirit convicts me of sin and my failures and how Jesus is the truth, and I repent. See, I get called. And having been called... He then declares me righteous. I'm justified, right? In God's sight through Christ. Romans 5.1 says we are justified through faith and we now have peace with God. But he does more, Paul says. Believers, he says, to, to whom he writes. But he also says to us, believers here at Noe Baptist Church, not only has God foreknown you, not only has he predestined you, not only has he called you, not only has he justified you, he has already glorified you. And theologian James Denny says, this is the most daring anticipation of faith that the New Testament contains. Because glorified is in the past tense. Like this has already happened. Believers are spoken of already glorified because their glorification is so certain. So God will bring to resurrection and to heaven those whom he foreknew, predestined, called and justified, giving them new bodies in a new world. We are all different. In heaven, we will all be different, but we will be like Jesus, perfected. With new resurrection bodies, like Jesus' resurrection body. Friends, these verses are written to encourage us. In the midst of groaning and difficulty, God is working to transform us into the image of Jesus. Trust him. For God knew and fixed his heart upon us in ages past. He predestined us or marked us out. In time he called us, he justified us, and he glorified us. We are secure in him. So who can say anything against us? Who can shake your faith? Who can condemn you? Who can disrupt your life? He says, no one. For we are more than conquerors, verses 31 to 39. That's what he goes on to. In light of what all that God has done for us, we are absolutely secure. No one can bring any charge against believers, and no one can separate us from God's love. Those two truths. And there are four questions here. If God is for us, who can be against us, he says. Well, we have a lot of things against us. Unbelievers could be against us. Indwelling sin is against us. The devil is against us. They seem to be very strong, but ultimately they have nothing to say against us because Jesus has made us secure. No condemnation, no separation. It is God, if God is for us, doesn't matter what anyone else says. 
Growing up, what my parents said against me, what my neighbors said against me, what people, the priest said against me, whatever it happened to be, whoever speaks against me has nothing on me. And I go, yeah, yeah, thank you. I am in Jesus now. I'm a child of the living God. I am an heir of God, we saw in Romans 8 earlier. Co-heir with Christ. I have an eternal inheritance. You can burn my Bible. You can stop me praying. You can do whatever you can try to do. And you can accuse me of being evil. You can accuse me of being in a cult. You can accuse me of all these things they can accuse me of. And guess what? Washes off my back. Because who am I? Who are you? Someone brings a charge against you. Paul's answer, he says, what? No one, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But God gave up his son for you. God is committed to you. Don't worry about the, the accusations of others. Listen to what God says about you. God is for us. God is for Anscrat Sooners. God is for you. Throw your name in that. God is for you. It's not against you. Who will bring, secondly, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one, he says. It's God who justifies. God has already made us right with him. They can say what they like. The enemies can say what they like. Who is he that condemns? See, the pictures of being in a law court, well, you're in a law court and they bring their charges against you. Why is it they can't condemn you? Romans 5 verse 1, you're already justified. You're already... No, no, no. You're already glorified. It's too late to bring the charges. I already belong to heaven. I've already been raised spiritually. You see, don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Don't listen to the lies of people. Now, there is our self-condemnation. Or Satan may attack us and say, look at you. You're not really a Christian. Look at how you behave. Look at how you sin. You think God's forgiven you? You're a joke. You know, sometimes Satan will work that way in those low periods in your life. Don't listen to him. Your judge says not guilty. More than that, he is your advocate. He comes along alongside speaking on your behalf. Someone had said, we can call out to the demons in hell and say, which of you is going to condemn me? And there'll be no answer because we're in Christ. And then finally, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble do it or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Will those things somehow separate you and God can't show his love to you as if, oh, well, God's love's gone. God's love's been withdrawn from me. No, not at all. Nothing can separate you. In the prison, Paul experienced the love of Christ. In the midst of cancer treatment, you can experience the love of Christ. In the midst of financial uh, difficulties, you can experience the love of Christ. He lists all these things. Can anything do it? No. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword. Nothing. Absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You're hearing from a Greek. Let me take you to another Greek. 
He was called the golden mouth Greek. John Chrysostomos. Chrysostomos means golden mouth. An early church leader, he lived between 347 and 407. Brought before the Roman emperor. The emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Get this, right? Here you go. Renounce Christianity, you stay here or I'll banish you. Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me, for this whole world is my father's house. But I will kill you, says the emperor. No, you can't, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures. No, you can't, because my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. But I will drive you away from other men and you shall have no friends left. You know you can't, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. And he says to the emperor, I defy you, for there's nothing you can do to hurt me. Believers in Syria and Sudan and China and Vietnam and Indonesia and Bangladesh, many parts of the world are losing their lives for the sake of Jesus. But they're never separated from Jesus. Concludes verse 37. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Literally the Greek says we are super conquerors. Not just victors, but super victors through Christ. Christ wins in the end. We win with Christ. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul finishes this chapter. He says, my Roman brothers, he says, and sisters, understand who you are in Christ. Understand what you have in Christ. Don't let anyone take it away from you. Stay strong, stay faithful. Friends, when I preach at a funeral for a Christian believer, I preach with confidence. I preach with the cross of Jesus in view. I preach with eternity in view. I preach with the truth that there is no condemnation in view. I preach with hope that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I rejoice because God can be trusted in all things to work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to to his purpose. That's my testimony. That's the Bible's testimony. May it be your testimony. To God be the glory. Amen.